Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I'm doing a relaxed fit episode. So instead of going into one or two topics in detail, I'm just going to share some more detailed updates about what's been happening here on the homestead. So I'll be covering things like what's going on with my rooster, the garden progress, apiary updates, and much more. And I'd just like to apologize straight off the bat if I sound a little congested today. Um, I think I jinxed myself last week when I said, I'm going to keep wearing my mask because I haven't had a cold since I've been wearing it. And my sinuses went, haha, you might not have had a cold, but you do have allergies and we're going to make you suffer. So that's where I am this morning. I have no idea what's blooming right now that's caused it, but I just woke up and I'm full of sinus headache and full of congestion. So I apologize straight off the bat. And I would like to say that this week's episode is being brought to you by a double espresso because I need it to get through the day. So let's start with homestead updates. And I'm pleased to report that my tomatoes are starting to fruit. Most of the varieties that I chose this year fruit in bunches. And I realized I've actually never had a tomato that fruits like that before. And there's just something so charming about these little bunches of tiny green tomatoes slowly getting larger and larger. And these plants have really exploded so much in the last couple of weeks that I am a little worried that they're still crowded despite my best efforts to have less plants this year and to space them further apart. Two have actually grown so large that they're kind of overshadowing the pepper plants. So that's one thing to keep in mind next year that I do need even more space. I was able to get out yesterday afternoon. It was scorching hot, but there was some cloud cover and a breeze. So I just stuck with it and I went out to this bed and I just pruned and tied them back and really tried to smarten them up. A quick look in my books reminded me that I'm supposed to be removing the leaves from the first 12 inches of stalk. So I did all of that and then I also cut back any dead leaves Some of these plants had actually exploded out of their cages, so it took me a little while to gently move things back in line, tie up, you know, branches that were getting out of hand or that had escaped the cage. And I'm pleased to say that things look a lot better now. They don't look as crowded. I've managed to push back those two tomatoes from completely overshadowing the pepper plants. And overall, I'm just really pleased with how this bed looks. And I'll post some pictures on Instagram and on my website. And as a side note, is anyone else obsessed with the smell of tomato plants? You know, when you work with them and yes, they stay in your hands like yellow green, but then it's that wonderful scent of tomato leaves just all over your hands. I absolutely love that smell. Moving on to other garden plants, I am cautiously optimistic that I did space my corn plants out more effectively this year, as they're just sort of looking bigger and healthier than I remember last year's batch looking. While I was out yesterday after I fixed my tomato plants, I put the beans in and I added more fertilizer spikes to the corn bed. So fertilizer spikes are new for me. I have usually just used sort of pellets or a liquid mix that you add before you water. 
But I was looking for different fertilizers over winter. I saw these spikes and I thought it would be a good idea because they're a very slow release type of fertilizer, which is great for someone like me who's very forgetful. And so I often fall out of the set schedule like myself. So if I say I should be fertilizing once a month, I tend to forget and it helps to have these because I don't have to worry about it quite as much. I realise I'm running out of time to get my buckwheat garden going as well as any pumpkin patches if I really want to actually get anything from them this year. It's just been so hot and then so rainy that I keep putting it off and I figure that I'll either get it done by the end of this week or I'll just save the seeds until next year. I don't want to half arse it and have wasted those lovely seeds. So watch this space. I'm hoping to have an update that I actually got myself in gear and got these into the ground. I don't know if you remember but I had posted on Instagram a little while ago about how I had found some bushes on the back of the property that I was pretty sure were a kind of berry bush and to confirm it I decided to net them off to keep away the deer and the birds and then just watch and see what happened. And I'm very pleased to report that as I had suspected, these are blackberry bushes. And so I've had a great time plucking the right berries whenever I'm out by the apiary or the very back of the property there and just eating them fresh. It would be really, really nice if I could get a decent harvest from them. Um, there's some that are growing without netting, but I have a big bush which is all netted in and that's the one I'm really hoping I can keep protected from the deer and roaming chickens because it would nice to have enough of a harvest that I could do a bit more with them. Right now, I'm just sort of eating them fresh. I guess if I felt super decadent, I have some gluten-free cheesecake that they would go great with. But if I can get enough, I can freeze them and then when it's colder, make things like blackberry cobbler or blackberry crumble, two really, really yummy desserts. And the whole process of just having berries that I can just pluck straight off the vine and eat is really exciting for me because when I was growing up in England, we do have some wild berry bushes. It's usually blackberries as well, but there are some wild raspberry bushes and very occasionally I would go to an area that had them and I never got to eat them because for reasons that I don't understand, my parents told me that wild berries are filled with worms. So I was never allowed to eat them off the bush and the few times that I did convince them to let me like get a punnet of them and bring them home, they would make me soak them claiming that if there were any worms in them that they would come out and float in the water and I never ever found a worm ever but usually after I'd soaked them my parents would find some kind of excuse and we'd never end up eating them and in hindsight I don't know if this is a weird my parents just hated blackberries and wouldn't tell me thing or more likely my parents are so removed from the natural world that they're very suspicious of it and they tend to think of it as dirty and unpleasant. So I think they must have just heard something, maybe a rumour about someone having a worm in a blackberry and then that became a fact that could not be ignored. So it's just really delightful to enjoy something like this that I feel 
is probably a large part of other people's childhoods. I'm sure I've got listeners who had great fun as kids plucking berries or going berry picking, whether it was at a farm or they were wild bushes. It's just odd looking back at my childhood. My parents were we didn't even live in the city, but if you think of a city type person, that's my folks. We weren't ever allowed pets. Animals could not be anywhere near the property, let alone in the house. I was always kind of told that animals are dirty and gross and disease vectors. And um, we were desperate for a pet growing up. And we one time got a hamster because my dad was so sick of us asking that he just on a whim let us pick one up and my mum was furious and never forgave him for it and uh, we were constantly told like how filthy the hamster was and like there was a lot of obsessive hand washing and all this kind of stuff and there's just a lot of um, distrust of nature and going out in it so I had friends growing up who went to camps and did like kayaking and hiking and camping and all these kind of fun outdoor activities and I was never allowed to do any of that I wasn't allowed to go anywhere to do that if we had a family vacation it would be to some fancy resort where we were expected to just sunbathe by the pool all the time while our parents like drank cocktails and we'd have to amuse ourselves and it was all very I don't know middle class and boring if you were a kid as much as I can see, you know, how fortunate we were to even go on holidays. I know a lot of people couldn't travel and all that kind of stuff. But basically, sometimes I look back and I think it it could be seen as weird that for someone who grew up in this very sort of sterile animals and nature is gross environment that I am now fully immersed in, you know, having as many animals as possible in my house, having plenty of animals on the homestead, you know, working with bees, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think really what it is, is ever since I was a kid, I was always drawn to nature. And um, because I wasn't allowed access to it, I used to pore over books about all kinds of animal species and different ecosystems. There was even a time where I wanted to be a marine biologist. And that never came to fruition because basically I was told that that was stupid. And um, what would I work with in England? Because it's not like, (laughs) it's not like you're going to find very many exciting sea creatures there. Um, And I was basically just told like, don't waste your time. It's pointless. And so I didn't dig into it. And it is a regret, but there we have it. So now here I am, that little kid that I used to be who was so desperate for any kind of animal companionship is now fully immersed in living in a zoo, basically. (laughs) But back to the um, the homestead, moving away from memory lane for a second. My much neglected weed choked side bed that I often mention as being my project because I keep neglecting it or sometimes I dig in and I get some of those weeds out, but then I just can't keep up with it. Well, it is blooming right now with wildflowers and clover and it, it looks beautiful. I mean, it it's still covered with weeds but the wildflowers are tall they're we've got some I'm not entirely sure what types are in there but it's like orange burnt orange bright orange we have yellow we have some red poppies coming up and then some of the weeds like a lot of people think clover is a weed I have white clover purple clover 
I have some kind of weed with little blue flowers coming out that's really beautiful. And so I think even if all I can do is get 50% of the weeds out of that bed, it's gonna look so much better just with those flowers blooming. I just need to clear it up a little bit. When I put wildflower seeds down early this year, I purposely chose a drought resistant seed mix because that area, it's not convenient to any kind of tap. So watering it is a huge pain in the butt. My hose doesn't stretch that far. It's just like hauling back watering can after watering can. So I wanted something that could cope between rainfalls. And it really does seem to be flourishing right now. So that was definitely the right choice. I kept the bag so that if it did work out, I would know what to buy again in future. And fingers crossed that they are established and will come back year after year. So I don't have to keep on putting fresh seed down. It was behind this bed that I also put some corn and sunflowers I wanted to see if they would grow and they are coming up they are behind my other corn and sunflower plants um, because they went in a little later and they're not quite as taken care of there like they don't get as much water and all that kind of stuff but they are coming up they are looking pretty good and I'm optimistic that they will reach full size soon and just kind of add a nice visual little variety back there. Now earlier I did get a strawberry harvest, but I am ashamed to say that I missed at least 50% of them. It's something that I really need to keep on top of. Um, I forget that usually what happens is they all tend to ripen around the same time. And I just sort of missed the boat on this one. So I didn't get as many delicious little berries as I could have. And I've made a note to myself to be more on top of this for next year so that I don't waste those beautiful fruit. I will say that what we did get was absolutely delicious. And I'm glad that these little strawberry plants that I bought as rescues for something like, I think I got them for like 50 cents or a dollar each, have just exploded, taken over this bed and have done really well year after year. Now, speaking of strawberries, I finally looked up whether these little strawberry appearing fruits that pop up in my lawn are wild strawberries or something mimicking a strawberry. And it turns out that we actually have both on the property. So we have actual wild strawberries, which are sometimes called alpine strawberries, woodland strawberry, the Carpathian strawberry, and sometimes European strawberry. And the latter name is Fragaria vesca. And these are actually a member of the rose family, which was a complete surprise to me. And they grow throughout the northern hemisphere. Now, the key thing about wild strawberries is that the flowers are white and the fruit looks almost identical to what we are used to as strawberries, but they're smaller. And even though they're small, they're very sweet and tender. But we also have something called the mock strawberry. It's also known as the Indian strawberry and the false strawberry. And the Latin name is Podentilla indica. And it's similar in appearance to wild strawberries, but the flowers are yellow and the fruit is much smaller, more circular. And although it is safe to eat, it's completely edible, it's very bland. So it's um, a little, it is juicy, but it's almost just like getting a little shot of water. There's not really any flavor to it that I could detect. 
So if you're like me and you've noticed what look like strawberry plants popping up in your lawn or around the edges of beds, odds are that whatever it is, whether it's real wild strawberries or mock strawberries, it is safe to eat. But like I said, mock strawberries, not so good. Wild strawberries, absolutely delicious. So the key is if you can catch them when they're blooming. If it's yellow, probably don't want to eat the fruit because it's going to be bland. But if it's white, keep an eye out for that fruit because it's going to be small but delicious. Now moving away from the gardens to chickens, I am really pleased to report that Meat Butt, who if you recall had been sick, I took her out of the main flock, brought her in for a while and then finally put her into the special needs coop with Agatha. Well, she seems to have made a full recovery from whatever has been going on with her. Not only is she moving around a lot more, she's brighter eyed, she's active, but when I picked her up, she seems to have gained some weight and she started laying eggs again. Now she's only produced two so far, but considering her age and this recent health scare, I was absolutely shocked to even find them. I really didn't think that she was ever gonna lay eggs again keeping in mind that she is a much older chicken she's at least five years old probably older so her best egg laying years are behind her but yep she popped out a couple of eggs for me and and they looked like healthy eggs now I can't eat them because of the medications that I've been giving her so they've just had to go straight into the bin but it's still a delight to find them I also feel that she's completely acclimated to the special needs coop. She doesn't seem to miss roaming with the other hens, which I was a little worried about. I will say an unexpected and kind of charming thing that I have witnessed is that the other hens come and hang out with her. So with the special needs coop, it's been interesting to watch how the free roaming chickens treat the girls in there. So half the time they try and challenge them through the run and they kind of have a fight. It's not real aggressive. It's just sort of posturing. But then other times they seem to see them as still kind of part of the flock. They'll come and check on them. Sometimes they sit right by them. So they're almost touching through the run. They're definitely considered part of the property if not necessarily their particular flock but since I put meat butt in there the girls have actually been hanging out with the special needs girls a lot more and it's really touching I, I mean chickens are so quick to get rid of any hen that is sick or shows weakness so it's kind of nice that they're coming in and they're checking on meat butt I would I should say meat butt is the hen who when I had just three she was the one who was turning into a rooster. So she was really loud. She wasn't crowing, but she had a really, really loud strident voice. She took the role of alerting the other girls and she grew a spur, which has now started growing a full nail on it. And I've taken a picture of that. I've shown it before. Well, I should have known she was feeling better because she's been getting progressively louder again. So now I hear my meat butt strident call. Whenever she sees me, she starts yelling at me for food. And that alone was probably the sign that she had turned a corner and was doing a lot better. Now, speaking of chickens, I finally decided to rehome my rooster, Pepper Jack. And really what was the turning point for me was 
as I've mentioned previously, I think when I shared the bruises that I was getting from him and people really pointed out to me that it's not really that funny, it's not okay, and it could get a lot worse, that gave me a wake-up call. And I had started considering the possibilities of where I could safely place him because I don't want him to end up on someone's dinner table. He was a rescue. He had a hard start in life. I feel like he deserves to live. He deserves to be a rooster. And he is a good rooster. He is doing what he is supposed to do, which is protect his hens. And he just sees me as a threat. He sees me as another rooster trying to horn in on his ladies. But the deciding factor for me was I was leaning down into the coop. So my big coop has stable doors. So you can open just the top door or the just the bottom door. And I when I'm collecting eggs I just open the top door and then I lean in and the girls really like what I call their ghetto nest box which is just an upturned plastic tote with a hole in it on the ground they really really like that nest and so I usually just reach in stretch over the door and get those eggs and what happened was I was doing that and for the first time ever, he came charging into the coop and he attacked me. And that's never happened before. I've never had to worry that when I'm collecting eggs, he would go for me. And thankfully, because of how my arm was reaching, he didn't get my face, but he did grab my arm. He left some nasty bruises and a nasty scratch. And for me, that was the final moment for me that was like this is never going to get better it's only going to get worse I've tried everything I tried positive reinforcement I tried shaming him I did all the tricks of holding him upside down by his feet cradling him like a baby like embarrassing him front in front of the girls and it would maybe give me a day or two of peace but then it would just happen all over again so I reached out to some online communities and Okay, this is my relaxed fit episode, so I'm just going to be blunt. As much as there are some really awesome people on Facebook, and ultimately this story is about awesome people on Facebook, Facebook is such goddamn trash. I cannot count the number of times that I've been on there and the comments are just uncalled for bull. It's like when I found that turkey hen who was obviously someone's pet because she was a rare breed of turkey. She didn't look like a wild turkey and she had a band on her leg. And so I posted to Facebook groups, you know, asking if anyone was missing a turkey. And I had so many mm, assholes. I'm just going to say it. I had so many assholes who were like, that's a wild turkey, you dumbass. And I'm like, no, it's not because of X, Y, Z. And the responses are literally just like, lol, okay, whatever. And this was kind of like that. So I, you know, I posted about him. I was like, I know people don't really want aggressive roosters. I just think that if you have a much bigger property, if you really love Jersey Giants, you know, maybe this is something that would work for you. And of course I got the usual, like, you should just kill him. No one's going to want him. Trash. But thankfully, and this is why I still put up with Facebook, I did hear from some people who were very helpful And one of them was a woman who said that she could take him and she runs a farm rescue. So I had connected with her and we arranged to, for me to basically bring him because, you know, obviously I'm like, you're doing me a huge favor. I will come to you or I will meet somewhere if that feels safer. And she's like, no, 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 come to the farm, meet me at the barn. So I caught him 
and it actually went really, really well for once. I used a rake to pin him to the ground, wrapped him in a towel, shoved him in the cat carrier, and then we were off. So I went to this farm rescue. It's about 20 minutes away from me. And just driving there, I started to feel really good about things. Um, It's a beautiful area and it's filled with what I call, and I don't know if this is the correct terminology, but I call it like a gentleman's farm, you know, where it's absolutely massive houses on land with someone who made their money doing something else and is now like, hey, farming looks like fun. Or like, I make all this money and I'm super rich, so I'm just going to buy some cows because that seems like fun. It's like that kind of environment dotted with actual working farms. So it's all these beautiful houses and properties. And I'll be honest, that's kind of my dream to have saved enough money to just buy some massive sprawling property with enough land that I can kind of bring home whatever I want and, you know, just support the farm through outside work. So I'm already like, wow, this is amazing. I love this. I love looking at these farms. I passed a honey farm. So that is a new place to consider contacting if I need new bees or honey or whatever. So I'm already feeling much better. It's also a beautiful day, which helps. It's a lovely drive. And I get there and I meet her at the barn and it's basically like farm animal paradise. It's this lovely sprawling property with different barns set up, different fields and just anything you can think of she has. So this woman who runs it is an absolute sweetheart and she gave me kind of a mini tour and we ended up chatting for over an hour and I could have stayed there even longer but I had somewhere to be and so basically she has their um, alpacas and mini horses, full-size donkeys, potbelly pigs, chickens of all kinds of breeds including silkies and bantams, all different kinds of ducks, geese. She has a gorgeous highland steer which is her only cattle right now. She has guinea fowl and probably about a million other things that I'm forgetting and everyone's in great shape and they're all rescues. So some of them were taken because they were being sent to slaughter. Some were seized from really awful neglect or hoarding situations. And some had been given to her from people who couldn't keep them anymore, kind of like me and my rooster. And what's really awesome about her farm, aside from the fact that she's rescuing and rehabilitating all of these animals, is that any animal she takes in will be taken for life. She's not in the habit of rehabilitating and adopting out. When she takes an animal, that's now her responsibility and she'll keep it for the rest of its natural life. And that everything she produces on the farm, so she makes soap, she does classes on things like soap making and animal care, she grows and harvests her own hay, things like that. You don't pay for anything directly. It's all donation based. So it's all about giving back to the community, building support and assisting people who are interested in learning about farm animals. So it's just really inspiring. It's kind of my dream life being able to afford something like that and to be able to commit to something like that. So I was really just delighted that she had reached out to me to take Pepper Jack because I mean, can you think of a better home for him? And what's really wonderful is I was talking to her because she has all kinds of roosters and she does have one who's in charge. His name is Magic Mike. He's gorgeous. He looks like maybe some kind of Easter egg mix or something like that. And what she has found is that even if she takes aggressive roosters, 
usually Magic Mike puts them in their place and then they learn to cohabitate. And because she has so much space and so many chickens, roosters, if you keep them together, roosters will either kind of get their own favorite hens and generally keep away from the other rooster and his hens. Or sometimes if there are no hens, you can have multiple roosters living together in what's called a bachelor flock. Well, she kind of has the former. And she actually sent me a picture um, now that she kept Pepper Jack in quarantine for a couple of days. She let him out. Magic Mike put him in his place. And now he has a little gaggle of hens that are his crew, including some roosters that hang out with him and he's friends with. And basically, he's just getting on really well with everyone apart from Magic Mike. But my hope is that he will be less aggressive with people now that he is no longer top dog. Now that he's no longer the number one rooster, I'm hoping that he'll stop going for people. And also he has the space to avoid everyone there. So I think it's just the perfect situation. What was really, really, really fun for me is that not only did the owner send me away with a armful of soap and uh, lip balm and all kinds of stuff that she made herself, but she told me that she would really like to have a beehive. And so we are talking about next spring, me setting up at least one hive on her property. And our agreement would be that we would split the harvest. So she's not really interested in honey. What she wants is the beeswax for her soaps and body care products. And so if we get a hive set up there for her, the plan would be that I would harvest, keep the honey and give her all of the beeswax, which is a perfect deal for me. And it gives me an excuse to go and hang out there more, which I would love to do. And what she wants to do is she wants to learn as we go. So I would set things up for her. I'm supplying all the equipment, but whenever I come out, she will join me and I will teach her hive maintenance and management during that first year and hopefully what will go on to be years of this kind of thing. So fingers crossed. I've really wanted to set up an out yard for a while. So this will be a super fun experiment for me. And I think it will be mutually beneficial. So the same day that I dropped Pepper Jack off at this wonderful farm rescue, I picked up a new rooster. So it just so happened that when I'm posting on these various Facebook groups, basically begging someone to give Pepper Jack a good home, a friend of mine, a beekeeping friend, had a rooster who she needed to rehome because she has two and she felt that the hens might be getting overbred. But also this particular rooster had fallen in love with her turkey hen and would not leave the poor girl alone. And it was clearly stressing this turkey out. She didn't want him anywhere near him. He's chasing her all the time. And she just thought that once roosters tend to fixate like this, it's really hard to break them of it. And so she decided that finding him an all chicken only flock would probably be the best solution. So I reached out to her and I said, look, I haven't confirmed placement of my guy yet, but it's looking like I found someone. Would you be open to me taking your rooster? And she was like, yes, absolutely. My kids love the idea that he's not very far away because we live super close to each other. And from my point, because this rooster has been raised around children, he's not aggressive. He doesn't attack people. 
And actually, he's a little wary of people. So even though he was raised as a chick by her family and has been around children, he generally sees people as slightly suspicious bringers of food. He's not interested in challenging you. He's not interested in cuddling either. But that is great for me. So I haven't officially named him, but I do kind of just call him handsome. So let's go with that for now. And he's a really good looking rooster. Um, Based on how he felt when I picked him up, he's not quite as heavy as Pepper Jack, who again was a Jersey giant. So that's the largest chicken breed. But handsome is a Brahma barred rock mix. And the Brahma is the second largest chicken breed. So he actually is about as wide and tall as Pepper Jack is, just not quite as heavy. And due to his Brahma genes, he has partly feathered legs and a really interesting comb. So I can't figure out whether it's a kind of rose comb or a really big pea comb, but it's three individual rows of little knobbly bright red comb. It's really cute and attractive. And he's just a really good looking rooster. I'm going to try and get some good pictures of him to share on my website. My friend thinks he's about 18 months old, so he's just a baby compared to my girls. And I brought him home and I confined him to the run away from the chickens for 24 hours, but would let him into the coop at night. And just as a side note, this is not proper proper quarantining. It was because I don't have a quarantine coop. It's not the best idea, but sometimes you just have to risk these things. And I did. Like I always say, if you can do proper quarantine completely away from your other chickens, I definitely recommend doing that. I sadly didn't have the luxury of that. So I don't know, do as I say, not as I do, I guess. But okay, so I kept him away from them for 24 hours. And then for the following 48 hours, I kept the whole flock, which is just five hens and him now confined to the coop and their outdoor run and this was I was hoping it would give them time to bond and what's really really good is that they took to him straight away he is so much more gentle than pepper jack so everyone like all the hens just seem a lot more relaxed around him pepper jack could be quite rough and I know some of the girls would kind of try and get out of his way and they didn't really want to be around him and it wasn't so much mating as raping lately so it's really nice to see the girls kind of relaxing around this new guy and he treats them very gently. I was concerned that Cheddar, who is the black Jersey giant hen that was found with Pepper Jack and came in together to the pound, I was worried that she would be upset that Pepper Jack had gone because they did seem to be bonded. However, apparently she is super fickle. She does not seem to care at all. Within minutes of meeting the new rooster, she was already like cowering behind him when she saw me. She's not tame. And so she would be like, oh, protect me, my handsome male. And he would puff up and be like, okay, stay behind me and then back away from me because he's scared of me too. So clearly she doesn't care as long as there's a rooster around to take care of her. And based on this behavior I saw within the first 48 hours, I thought, okay, well, Cheddar is clearly going to be the new favorite. Actually, it seems like he has bonded most tightly with Cracker, my white leghorn. And you might remember that when I only had girls, Cracker was what I called the queen bitch. She kept all the other chickens in line and she could be quite aggressive about it. 
she seems to have taken the new rooster under her wing and I see them together almost all the time. So if she's somewhere, he is usually right behind. It's actually really, really sweet, particularly because he's younger and I know she's older and she's just got that kind of like, I've seen it all, stick with me younger and I'll take care of you. I do wonder if she likes the fact that this is a younger male, he's not as pushy, she has more say again, whether she's seeing this as her chance to sort of return as the reigning queen of the flock, or whether she genuinely just appreciates having a rooster around who isn't as pushy. I guess time will tell. But either way, I'm really, really pleased with how everything has ended up working out. It's such a pleasure to be able to go outside of the fence without needing to carry a rake to fend off attack. And I didn't fully realize how annoying it was until Pepper Jack was gone. In particular, I didn't realize that I had been making my visits a lot shorter because I just was sick of dealing with him and so I wasn't spending as much time with my girls and so it's really nice that now I can like crouch down I can hand feed them again I can scoop them up without being attacked it's just it's just a better situation for everyone I'm, I'm really happy and I hope it continues and it's really really good to know that Pepper Jack is just as happy in his new much bigger and fancier home where he can be a real rooster on a real farm And I just consider this whole situation a win-win. So if anyone ever tells you that you can't rehome an aggressive rooster, that the only thing you can do is eat it, I just want to say sometimes you'll be lucky and there are options available, so please don't give up. Just to round up my sort of chicken tails here, um, I decided to wait on the ducks and go ahead and get more chickens. So for my birthday, which is coming up at the end of the month, I have asked for a small secure coop that I can use as a quarantine coop. And so the plan is that I will get that for my birthday, get it all set up. And then sometime in August, I'll go out and I'll bring home some pullets. And I am hoping to connect with one of the rescues I've spoken about previously, who takes in feed store chicks that need extra care, raise them up and then adopt them out. I did notice that a lot of them have been placed already. So if there is no pullets available to adopt, I will take the drive. It's about an hour away to a local hatchery that's very good. They often have pullets in kind of a grab bag sort of environment where you kind of get whatever's available that day and uh, they have a mix of kind of any kind of chicken you can think of so I'll do that instead if I could choose ideally I would really love to get some colored egg layers like easter eggers olive eggers morans things like that and I love full-bodied chickens like Cochins, Orpingtons and Brahmas. So fingers crossed when I'm ready to bring home some pullets, I can get a nice mix of some really beautiful birds. And one big accomplishment I've made recently, after over a year of saying that I would do it, I finally, finally cleared out all of the raccoon poop in our shed and in our boat. And the reason I've been putting it off is that raccoon feces contains a kind of roundworm that can be inhaled as well as swallowed, and it can cause irreversible damage to your eyes, heart, and even brain. So to safely dispose of these droppings, you have to wear full protective gear, including an N95 rated respirator mask. And I finally decided that today was the day. I don't know why. It was just one of those days where I'm like, okay, this is it. So I wore some old clothes, put on coveralls, thick rubber gloves, 
and my respirator. I went out with two buckets. One was filled with hot soapy water. So it was just dish soap and water. And one was filled with hot water and a disinfectant. And everything I'd read recommended that you wet the feces before you remove it because it helps reduce the chance of being exposed to the roundworm eggs. So everything got wetted down, then shoveled away into thick garbage bags. In the boat, um, I threw away anything porous, so ropes, floaties, things like that, that might have come into contact with the poop that all went in the bin. I then wet everything down, everything got splashed with soapy water, rinsed through, and then the disinfectant. I did the same in the upper level of the shed, which was actually really scary because I really am starting to think that those stairs are going to give way any second. So I think that is probably the last time I'm going to go up there. I disposed of anything it touched, made sure everything was wet. I actually put some of the random stuff that had been up there out because we had rain coming and that was going to help rinse everything through. But finally, it is done. It took me about two hours in total to do it. I sweated buckets because it was a scorching hot day and I'm wearing like rubber gloves and coveralls. But it is done now. I don't have to worry about it anymore. And it means that I am one step closer to getting that boat gone. I finally convinced my husband that we are not using it and we should just give it to someone else who can enjoy it. And that is the plan. He has a student in mind who he thinks could you know use it rehab it get it functioning again so thank god this was my step to help with that and he's going to handle everything else two more points from the homestead before i move on to hive updates oh my god this is going on way longer than i anticipated okay so um real quick then we have new babies here on the homestead i forgot to mention my husband hatched another litter of healthy baby carpet pythons in june so yay babies this was a first time mama snake so or snake sorry (laughs) so i use that cutesy term at home but it's not very professional sorry um so the first litter that we ever got from this species was from tindalos that was the mother and the father is called Sarnath. And we only have the one breeder male right now. So Sarnath is the father again. But the mother is um, Yuguf, who we used to call baby Yug, but now is Mama Yug. And she produced 21 eggs, of which 20 successfully hatched. So that was really impressive. We're very pleased. The babies are adorable. And what's even more exciting is that we finally sold all the babies from the previous litter with the pandemic affecting shipping it was something that we were waiting on my husband has kept back three of his favorites and they look incredible their colors are amazing it's just very exciting to see his project really coming to life and for my side of the business I just received three baby pink tongue skinks from Europe And I'm so excited about this. I mentioned it briefly at the end of my last episode that getting new genetic lines from outside of the country is something that we had talked about doing, but hadn't made any steps towards achieving because with the pandemic, we figured that shipping would be a nightmare, particularly overseas. Well, my husband happened to come across someone who imports a ton of different species and one of them are baby pink tongues so I reached out I ordered three of them they recently arrived 
They're so sweet. I had forgotten how tiny the babies are. So I've been fussing over them a lot because just taking the year off from breeding, it's like I've forgotten everything. And so I'm just like fussing and spraying them and making sure they're okay. And it's just great to have them. I can't wait to see what they grow into. They won't get their adult coloring until they are at least 10 months old. So we have a long way to go there. And I'm just delighted that we're expanding things here and that the breeding genetic lines are going to be much more open. And the final homestead news is that we had our whole house generator installed. So this was something that I ordered at the beginning of the year. Some of you might remember that we had a really bad period where we lost the power after an ice storm and we had to get up at four in the morning to take all the reptiles to my husband's work because they had power and we didn't. And it was just a nightmare. It was also when I couldn't go to a hotel because I was waiting to hear back on a COVID test. And the whole thing was terrible. And it really made us realize that we couldn't put it off anymore. We needed to invest in the generator. Well, we ordered it back then and it took until July 1st for them to install it. It went really well. It took the whole day. I dropped the puppies off with some friends so that they wouldn't be stressed out, which was definitely the right decision. And I'm just delighted. Like it went well. The guys were so nice. It's much more compact and sleeker looking than I expected. I thought it would be this big, ugly thing, but it's not at all. And it's just going to be a game changer. If we need to leave during winter or summer, we don't have to worry about power loss. It can run everything. Um, we got basically the largest one they have and it's going to power, you know, the AC and we could even run laundry while we're doing it and the stove and, you know, all of the different lights that we have for the reptiles. You know, we use so much electricity here and it can do all of it. So I'm just delighted and fingers crossed that it actually does continue to work and it is exactly what we want it to be. So that was great. I had no idea that was going to take so long. I wasn't even sure I was going to get to an hour of recording today. So I'm sorry if I blathered a little bit there, but now I'm going to do hive updates. And just some sort of random hive news. The first thing is that the nucleus colony that I brought home apparently is like me and it hates the hot and humid weather. So when I went out to do a mite test, it just happened to fall on a day that was really, really gross. And when I opened up this hive, it was immediately apparent that they were not having it. And I just made a note of this in my book. And it's something I'm pointing out because some colonies do have particular responses to weather. So if anyone recalls Queen Marka, the my, the very first queen that I had, her girls hated the rain. So if rain was coming on, or even if it was just the tiniest drizzle, even if I was just popping the lid off to like replace a syrup feeder, uh, some of the girls would come out and go for me. They just hated it. And so it was something that I tried to avoid whenever possible. During that same day when I was doing my test, I also got my first sting of the year. Pretty good to get to July before it happened. It was actually one of the girls from my top bar colony, which I have repeatedly said is the most docile. They still are, but it was during a mite test, which is very stressful for the bees. So I definitely deserved it. And they got me through my suit. My suit is ventilated on the shoulders. I wasn't wearing a t-shirt. I had bare shoulders. And so they just got through the ventilation and they stung me. It's happened before. I'm sure it will happen again. Now, speaking about bees getting through things, 
it finally happened to me and I got a bee inside my veil. And I just want to be completely upfront and say that when it happened, I didn't panic, which is a miracle. So my heart was going about a million miles per hour. But what helped is that she wasn't interested in stinging me. She was very confused about how she got there and she was trying to get out. So I actually was very, very calm. I walked away. I had to walk pretty far because I was being followed by some bees who were still mad at me. And then I had to take my suit halfway off and I was trying to get her out the veil and she started to get really, really upset. And sadly, I had to squish her to get her out. And I ended up washing my suit and veil after that to get all the pheromones out. And then I went over it and I checked it for holes. And as far as I can tell, she didn't get in through the actual veil. There was some loose stitching that I think she worked her way in through where the veil connects at the zipper. And so I fixed that. And hopefully when I go out again, there won't be a repeat of this. Where I do want to be honest is yes, I stayed calm at the time, but it's really shaken my confidence. So when I got her out of the veil, I did have to suit up and finish what I was doing. And I will be honest that I was kind of shaken up and I was super paranoid because whenever I'm working with a hive, I always anticipate that I could get stung anywhere but on my face. My veil always feels impenetrable to me. It feels like my main line of defense. And so finally getting to a point three years in where a girl gets in there just made me feel like nothing is safe. And I am not someone who brushes off stings. I am not cool with it. I'm not like, eh, it happens. I am, I hate it. I hate to be stung. It hurts real bad. Um, And I am really adverse to knowing that pain is coming. It's like me and snakes. I don't handle snakes well because I can't read them as well. And I worry about being bitten and I'll get really freaked out if I think they're going to bite me. And it's just kind of sad. So yeah, if you're like me and you've had your confidence shaken, I just want to be upfront. I'm always honest with you guys. I'm not super brave. It did freak me out, but hopefully it's just something that it happened. I'm going to move on for it. And I hope after the next couple of inspections where there is no bee in my veil, I will regain that confidence. It looks like a honey harvest is coming up within the next seven to 10 days. My plan is to go out, start pulling those frames. I have some deep frames full of honey as well as sort of the mediums, the honey supers ready to go. I'm a little anxious about the time involved because I have this vacation coming up. We also have a guest coming to stay with us for a while and a couple of other things happening. My time will be limited, but I figure worst case scenario, I can get those honey frames off, put them into airtight storage, and then I could always harvest in August. So I'll keep you guys appraised of that. On the 22nd of June, the apiary inspector came out and this year he wanted to do something different. So I really like this guy. He's very eager. He knows his stuff. He clearly enjoys what he's doing. And this year what he wanted to do is coordinate with apiaries in the area and do like a day of visits where we were all invited. So we would all arrive at the first person's apiary go through the inspection together and then move on to the next house and so on. And when he sent out this email about it, my first thought was absolutely not. 
it, for me, it was just a biosecurity nightmare. I don't want people from all other environments traipsing onto my property after touching other hives, after walking on other lawns, after walking on other farms. I don't want that. It's just too big of a risk for me. I don't even like the fact that the apiary inspector um, has his own hive tools and stuff. Like that worries me. So I was like, no. And we had to reschedule a couple of times, but when we finally figured it out, he said, look, I've put you sort of the last visit of the day. Is it okay if whoever is remaining comes out, it will be like one to two people. And I said, okay, but they cannot touch my hives. Um, If they want to, they need to use fresh gloves and they have to use my hive tools. So it ended up being him and this one other guy. And the other guy was really nice. I'm glad I got to meet him. He keeps a kind of horizontal hive. The name of it, I cannot remember. I've never heard of it before. It's not like a regular top bar. It's not a long Langstroth, but it's similar. So it's the same setup as a long Langstroth, but instead of Langstroth sized frames, the frames are more square. So they're not as long and they're a bit deeper, I think. So that is very interesting to me and he's invited me to take a look at them so at some point I need to reach out to him and take him up on that because I'd love to see what the heck that is overall the inspection went fine um I wasn't okay so full disclosure I was really cranky that day and it didn't help that I just don't like people being there in general when I'm in a bad mood so I was a little cranky um, because I was the last visit of the day my bees were really reactive to them because they stunk of alarm pheromones so apparently they'd gone out to an apiary where the bees were super aggressive and they all got a lot of stings in their suits and their veils and even though they'd wiped off the stingers and they'd smoked themselves a little they obviously stunk to the bees so my girls who are really docile were very interested in them and then started kind of like pinging off our veils kind of going for my hands more generally it just wasn't great and I didn't like it I didn't like that my girls were getting upset because of all these alarm pheromones and I also felt like a complete ass because this poor inspector is so keen and he's like let's do a mite test and I'm like no and I said I'm sorry I don't want to do a mite test today I have a schedule for it and they're not due for it yet I will want to keep to the schedule so he's like okay great um tell me about this. I'm telling him about the queenlessness I've had. And he's like, okay, let's take eggs from this hive and put it in them. And I'm like, no, I've already done that. I need to leave them alone. I've been overworking them. I'm worried that me overworking them is what has led to queens failing. Like I just need to leave it. And I just felt like every time he eagerly suggested something we should try, I was just like, no. So it went fine. It went well. You know, I got my certificate of inspection. Everything was fine. He wasn't upset with me. But when he left, I walked in and I said, Henry, am I an asshole? And my husband just laughs. I was like, why? And I'm like, oh, and I told him. And he said, no, look, you know what you're doing. You have a schedule. You like your schedule. You hate when people alter your schedule. That's what this is about. And I agree. So that's done. Don't be like me, guys. I mean, make friends with your apiary inspector. We have a good relationship. I like the guy absolutely fine. I think he's perfect for the job. But conversely, don't be afraid to say no. You know your bees. You know your colonies. You know what works and what doesn't. He's there to just make sure everything's okay. Um, And that you're following guidelines and all that kind of stuff. So 
just go with your gut, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Okay, let's move on to individual hive updates. So I'm going to start with hive number one. So this is my Saskatraz Ohio hybrid queen. I named her Kaliak, the queen of winter. She's the only queen who survived this last winter. And I split this colony on May 10th. So I took half of the colony with the queen and moved to a new location to mimic a natural swarm. And a little bit of time after the split, there was a decrease in her egg production, but things then picked up again. And right now they have two deep boxes and two medium boxes. Within the last two weeks, I would say that they really started pulling in the nectar hard and working on their honey harvest. And there's also been a big explosion of brood. I'm super happy with how this colony looks. It's strong. It's populous. The queen is laying like a champ. They're bringing that nectar in. When I added the second medium on June 28th, I put on a queen excluder. And I always feel like once you have that excluder on, you have to watch your colony more closely. You know, It limits where the queen can lay, which could potentially lead to swarming. And it's going to be really hot and humid for the next couple of days, but I am hoping to pop out sometime in the morning when it's cooler, just to make sure that she still has space. Before I put the queen excluder on, I did confirm that she had frames within those two deep boxes, which she could lay in. And so hopefully she doesn't feel constricted, but that's something that I need to keep an eye on. Hive number two is my queenless split. So this is the queenless half of hive number one that stayed in the original location. So it was created on May 10th from the overwinter colony. And I ended up giving them a frame of queen cells from a nucleus colony that I had already made. On May 14th, four capped queen cells were in the middle box and there were four almost capped queen cells in the bottom box. And what I did is I ended up taking the frame of almost capped cells and I made a new nucleus colony, nucleus colony number two. May 23rd, I had a possible hatched queen cell, but I also had four swarm cells. And the colony was so populous that I decided to give them an additional deep box. So at this point in the year, they had two deeps and two mediums. May 24th, I went back in because I couldn't stop thinking about those swarm cells. So I went back in, I gave them one frame of eggs and one frame of mixed brood from hive number one. And I actually found that the swarm cells were being pulled down. I possibly damaged them during the inspection because they hung like a little bit below the frame. So it's possible they got damaged. But this is kind of good news for me because obviously I didn't want any swarming. And I added an extra medium at this point, which in hindsight was jumping the gun. So when I left them, they had two deeps and three mediums. By May 31st, there were no new queen cells. They didn't pull anything from those frame of eggs I gave them. And so I started to wonder, maybe there's a virgin queen in here. By June 4th, I had one ginormous swarm cell found in the middle box, but no other queen cells. So I left it as it was, and I gave them another frame of eggs. June 12th, the huge swarm cell is gone. It looks like it never even existed. And they're making new swarm cells, but there's no sign of eggs and I can't find a virgin queen. So I decide to leave everything as it is. But then I couldn't leave it alone again. I was thinking about those swarm cells again. So I went in the next day on June 13th and 
I really looked closely and I actually found tiny larva in the swarm cells and some eggs on that frame, but that frame only. And there was no sign of a queen. I went through it very carefully. I couldn't find anything. So she was there at least three days ago based on the presence of eggs, but the hive was also creating supersedure cells from that few amount of eggs that she had laid. So I don't know if they didn't like her for some reason and just let her lay enough eggs that they could try again and then disposed of her or if something else happened maybe was it possible that when I went in the day before that I accidentally squished her or rolled her or something but either way they're already in the process of replacing her so I don't think it was something that I did but either way I left everything as it was for this visit and I ended up taking off that third medium box because they weren't using it. June 15th, I go back in and I make a really weird decision in hindsight. I decided to split the colony because now they had all these swarm cells and a ton of queen cells. So I split it into two, half of them got the swarm cells and the remaining half got the queen or the supersedure cells. By June 19th, I merged them back together. And the reason why is that I noticed that one half of the split just didn't seem to be doing very well. And it really made me second guess myself. So I decided that it was a bad decision. And to correct it, I put them back together. On the plus side, the swarm cells got pulled down by the colony. When I put them back together, I used the newspaper method. So I put some sheets of newspaper with a couple of um, holes poked in it between them just in case they had already seen each other as separate. June 28th, I was really pleased to see that the honey super is almost ready to be harvested. They're pulling new queen cells. And so I gave them some more eggs and more brood from hive number one. And even though I strongly suspect because of the fact they've had such low brood for so long that I wouldn't see mites. I went ahead, I did a mite test and I got a zero reading from the alcohol wash. That's zero out of 300. So to do for this week, I need to look for signs of a new queen and I can either give more eggs if there's no change or I can see if there's any queens available to buy locally and do that. And then I also need to pull the honey to harvest. Hive number three. So this is Queen Flora. And this started as nucleus colony number two, which was made from the aforementioned split on May 17th. On May 23rd, there were two capped queen cells and the population was always a little low with these guys. So I gave them one frame of eggs and I started offering syrup as additional support. By May 31st, I spotted a virgin queen and the population is still small, but it was holding steady. By June 4th, the queen looked bigger and I was wondering if she had successfully mated, but on this check, there were no signs of eggs. By June 12th, there were eggs and that meant that I was queen right. I had a mated queen happily laying away. So I moved them out of the nucleus colony into a full-size Langstroth 10 frame. I kept it in the same location. I still offered syrup at this time and how the hive looked was six frames with eggs, brood and food and then four new foundation only frames that they could work on. By June 14th, I added a medium of drawn comb that I pulled out of storage and on June 20th, I marked the queen successfully, thank God, and I noted that things looked good. There was the queen, I found eggs and I found brood. 
on June 28th, I did a mic test and they got zero out of 300, which is awesome. And I noticed that they're really picking up on the honey production, which is a wonderful sign. Now we have hive number four, and this is the nuke that I purchased. It's an Ohio queen that I called Olwen, which is based on a Welsh sun goddess who overcame 13 obstacles to obtain true love and so is associated with hardship and tenacity. And I named her this after I dropped her and thought I'd killed her, so it seemed appropriate. So just real quick, because I haven't had this colony very long, she came home on the 14th. And I moved her immediately into a full-size Langstroth 10 frame box and offered syrup as additional support. By June 20th, that was the day that I dropped the queen, freaked out, found her, successfully marked her, named her, and then did a quick inspection and found that the colony is still looking good. Lots of eggs, brood, and the queen thankfully lived. And then I did a mite test on the 28th and I got one mite out of 300, which is excellent. So now we have nucleus colony number one. So going back a little bit, this was created from hive number one, my overwintered hive on April 27th. It consisted of five frames of pollen, eggs, brood and honey. And I gave them a second box with drawn comb and some honey stores as well as a feeder with syrup and a patty, shook in extra bees and closed the entrance up overnight. May 1st, I placed the Carniolan Queen from that package of dead and dying bees that I received in this nuke, hoping that she would survive. May 8th, I saw that the queen was accepted, but she wasn't laying. And there were two capped queen cells that the colony was tending to, so I left them alone. On May 14th, the Carniolan Queen was gone, and I gave them a frame of eggs. By the 17th, I could confirm for sure that they had disposed of her and she looks like she never started laying. So she obviously just didn't, they knew something was wrong with her and they got rid of her. And the colony was actively pulling more queen cells, but generally seemed content. May 23rd, they had three capped queen cells, but the brood population was low. So I added another frame of mixed brood. On May 24th, I found a newly hatched, still fuzzy queen, a photo of which I shared on Instagram and on my website. By May 31st, I couldn't find this virgin queen and I wondered if maybe she was out on a mating flight. I did note that there were two capped queen cells and one almost ready to be capped they were looking after, which already kind of gave me an idea that they were maybe hedging their bets with that newly emerged queen, so I left those cells alone. By June 4th, the previous queen was gone and they had one capped queen cell and one almost ready to be capped. And the colony was industrious and calm. So I felt that they knew what they were doing. June 12th, the colony is pulling down the queen cells. So I wondered if maybe there was a virgin in here. I didn't see her, but I didn't want to bother them too much. So I mostly left them alone. June 19th, I found an open queen cell, but I didn't actually spot a virgin queen. June 28th, I found no sign of eggs or queens, so I gave them one frame of eggs from hive number one, and I'm still offering them syrup as support because I feel like they might need it. So what I've got left to do with this little colony is just check them for signs of a queen, and I'm going to give them a few more weeks to get queen right, and if they fail to raise their own queen at that point, I'm going to merge them with hive number three because it's going to get later in the year, there's going to be less drones, it's probably not going to be as successful a mating. So they've got a few more weeks, and then I'm merging them. And that brings me to my top bar hive, 
which I named the queen Fortuna, and these are Italian genetic bees. Italian genetic bees? It's an Italian genetic line. (laughs) So you might recall that on April 29th, I received my dead and dying package. I couldn't save them despite my best attempts. So on May 8th, which is official day one for this colony, I picked up a package of bees from Georgia with Italian genetics and I installed them successfully. Now we had some cold nights, so I was a little worried about them and I was kind of hovering. So May 10th, the weather had warmed up enough that I could kind of check on them. I spritzed the bee cluster with some sugar syrup to give them food. They did have a feeder installed, but I wanted to make sure that they had immediate access to something. May 17th, I was delighted to find that they were already working on four to five frames and the wax was beautiful. May 23rd, five big full frames of comb had been created and they were working on three more. So I gave them three additional bars. And during this inspection, I found eggs, brood and the queen. This is also when I really started to note how sweet tempered and docile this colony is. May 31st, I just peeked in the observation window to check on the progress and everything was looking good. June 4th, they were still building beautiful comb. I found eggs, brood and queen. I removed the pollen patty in the feeder as they didn't touch it at all. They never needed it. June 12th, which is day 36, I added an additional bar. June 15th, I found eggs, brood and the queen. And I noticed that the comb size was increasing for honeycomb and that I'd probably need to add spaces. So when I went back in on June 20th, I added an additional top bar and put four spaces in. I noted eggs and the brood, but I somehow missed the queen on that visit. June 28th, which was day 52, I found the eggs, the brood and the queen. I added two bars and I did a mite test and I got zero. And real quick for the mite test, I use the alcohol wash. So usually what I do is I take a frame of brood. So it's got all those cute little nurse bees on it. And I bang the frame down onto some kind of container so I can scoop out the half a cup that I need of the bees. Now you can't bang natural comb. You're just going to destroy it. So what I had to do is hold the comb over a container and brush the bees off it. And that really super pissed them off. And that's how I got my first sting of the season. So overall, I do think this is still a very docile colony. But obviously, if you're going to brush them, it's going to make them upset. It's very stressful. And so they told me off and I deserved it. But the good news is that they had a zero reading of mites, which is fantastic. So what do I have left to do in the apiary coming forward? I have the honey harvest. I'm going to be keeping on top of monthly mite tests, particularly because as we start moving through summer into fall, that's when you're going to start seeing a spike if you are going to experience mites, which basically all of us will. I need to consider my treatment options. So what I have on hand is oxalic acid, Formic Pro and Apigard. Probably not going to use the Apigard because it was really shit last year. It didn't do anything. So I'm leaning towards the Formic Pro because you can use it with honey supers on and I'll let you know how that goes. I need to continue to monitor for signs of swarming. So for instance, I saw some queen cups being built on the very edges of the comb in the top bar hive because it's not a rectangular frame. So instead of being built all on the bottom of that pointed bit of comb, they're kind of, it looks like they were going to think about building them on the side. The queen had not laid any eggs in them, which was the good sign. So they're not deciding to swarm, but it's clearly a possibility. 
I obviously need to get queen right. That queenless split, I'm really hoping, raises the queen. Same for that nucleus colony. And I'm going to start thinking ahead to winter. I want to plan ahead. What do I need to be looking for now to make sure that everyone's building up where I need them to be for winter? And because this has gone on for so long, (laughs) thank you for sticking with me. Um, I'm going to do a really, really quick personal news update. And I'm not going to warn you like I usually do because I'm not going to go into detail. I'm just going to say that my med adjustment is going really, really well. I'm pleased with how it's progressing. I've had some insomnia lately, but I think it's due to the fireworks and the fact that one of my dogs gets really upset by fireworks. So generally speaking, things are trending upwards and that's great. And I'm also super looking forward to my vacation that's coming up, but I'm also nervous about leaving my babies, which I'm sure you can all identify with. And that's it for this episode. So this was my relaxed fit episode where I talk at you in detail about what's going on here. I hope it was interesting, maybe illuminating. And I hope when I share my mistakes that you guys can learn from them. I am definitely trying my best to learn from them. So that's it. Um, I did want to say that my next episode will be my 50th episode. And because it's where it's going to fall, I might do... I might take the time off, honestly, and do a repost of my very first episode where I talk about finding Babette, my chicken in a parking lot, and how that got me started on this crazy homesteading journey. So if you are new to the podcast, that is definitely a good one to listen to. I'm sure the sound quality is atrocious, (laughs) but I hope you'll bear with me. Um, that's not set in stone. I might do something else. So watch this space. I will let you guys know. Um, I hope you enjoy whatever I come up with. I hope you're all staying safe and happy and enjoying this weather, enjoying your bees and all your farm animals and getting time for yourselves. And I just hope, you know, you're doing well out there. So that's it from me. As always, remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Take care. Bye-bye.